Before we open God's word, let's pray. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that your work for us did not end at the resurrection, but you live to intercede for us. So come now and do that prophetic work. Reveal to us by your word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Come do it in spite of the sin of the preacher, in spite of the sin of the hearers. Come, O Lord, and do it for your glory and the good of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Our text is Romans 1, beginning in 28, down through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will endure forever. There's one of you around here that often will tease me and look at me before sermon and say, are you going to preach on sin this time? That person was saying it long before we ever got to Romans chapter 1. But if ever there were a yes to that question, it might be this particular text. Paul has many of these sections in his letters, these lists of vices. But the use of this one is a little different from the others. Think back, though, before we get into it. Remember, we're tracing from Romans chapter 1, verse 17. That thought, as he thinks about the gospel... In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This rather stark declaration that the only possibility for life for anyone is to be accepted by God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need righteousness, and we have none of our own. The only righteousness that can be ours is that which is acquired through the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And the section that we're in now, here at the end of chapter 1, began back in verse 18 as an answer to verse 17. If uh, If the only way to be righteous is by faith, it, it automatically means that none of us are righteous in our own right. And Paul's argument there, beginning in 1.18, is essentially, you need the gospel. You need a righteousness by faith. For you are hopeless and lost and dead 
in sin all on your own. We cannot save ourselves. Look at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 21 continues to to flesh this out. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Mankind has been presented with a clear view of God in the created order, and yet mankind, we have refused to honor Him or give thanks to Him. Instead, verse 23, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Instead of worshiping the the Creator who formed us and revealed Himself to us in the world He made, instead of bowing down and giving homage to Him, instead of thanking Him for everything He's done, we have elected to believe a lie. That we are our own gods and that we can live however we see fit and bow down to whatever we see fit to bow down to. And Paul begins after verse 23 to tease out these truths. And he, we've seen the first two of three total examples that Paul gives here at the end of Romans 1 for God's response to mankind's wickedness. We have refused to bow down to Him. What happens? What happens when God's grace is absent in someone's life? What happens when someone refuses to acknowledge the God who has made them? The first example we looked at was there in 24 and 25. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. He, he gave sinful man up to impurity and and the dishonoring of their bodies. The second example was there in 26 and 27, when when left unchecked by God's grace, mankind will descend into dishonorable passions, women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise. The third example here in Paul's argument is what we have before us tonight. Left unchecked by the grace of God, left to themselves and to their idolatry, mankind will be given over to a depraved mind. The ESV says debased. Dr. Duncan makes a point here at this transition between the second example and the third example in Paul's overall argument in the end of Romans 1. He he says that up until now, some of us reading may... um, still be excluding ourselves from the objects or the the subjects of the discussion. You know, we may look at verses 24 and 25 and say, well, I don't bow down to idols when I get home and I go to church on Sunday morning and evening. And, you know, I I am not really that category. I haven't exchanged anything for an image resembling a mortal man or a creeping thing. You know, you may look then at 26 and 27 and think, well, I can excuse myself from this because I'm not participating in such dishonorable passions that are described here. But now in verse 28, Paul brings us all in. You know, I'm not suggesting that you, that you actually are excused from the previous verses, but if you thought you could be, now in 28 through 32, there's no chance that you can be excluded from the list that Paul gives us. There is no more excuse 
Dr. Duncan says it like this, apart from God's restraining grace, that would be the kind of grace at work in an unbeliever, apart from God's restraining grace, or apart from his saving and transforming grace, that's the grace at work in a believer, this, speaking of the passage in front of us, this is the direction that all of us could go. Paul is telling us this because he wants us to understand that all of us need the gospel. He says the gospel is never something about which you can say, well, that's nice, and, and that person over there really needed to hear this. He says the gospel is something that we need to hear. Christians need to hear it, and non-Christians need to hear it. Do you understand this? You know, it can be easy, and we, we have another chapter and a half of, of a discussion on sin still left in this first section of Paul's letter. It, it can be easy, though, where we are to kind of lean back and go, well, we're going to talk about sin again tonight. I guess I'll just check out till we get to Romans 3.21, and the whole theme starts to shift towards the good news that Jesus came and died. Christians, we need this reminder. And, and evidently, based on the way Paul has written it, we need a strong reminder of these things. We need a stark, sometimes even harsh reminder of the sinfulness of sin and the bleak picture of humanity. You know, don't think for a moment that you get to pass on this discussion and the argument that Paul is making. The Lord has designed the gospel in all of its facets to be fruitful in your life, which means that you need to be reminded from what you have been delivered. You need to be reminded what Christ has done for you. And the only way for us to do that is to think through where we might be apart from the grace of God. And that's Paul's argument here. But you know, you may, you may be sitting here and, and, and still be unbelieving. In which case, this text is all the more very specifically applicable to you. These verses speak directly to your situation. These descriptions are of your heart that is still unaffected by the grace of God. And so the prayer tonight that we ought to make, we'll even make it right now, Holy Spirit, come be at work in the hearts of unbelievers here before this text, that He would make it clear to you your need of Christ, your need of the renewing Spirit of God to come and make clear your debased mind and that He may bring life and warmth to your heart. We need this part of the gospel. It's not something we can set aside. And Paul seeks in this final thrust here at the end of Romans 1 to convince us again of how much we need an alien righteousness, of how empty we are in ourselves. And he begins in verse 28 by speaking about this judgment of a, a debased or depraved mind. Look back at verse uh, 28, since they, still speaking about these unbelieving people, those who were seeking to leave God, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. A debased mind, it is depraved or defiled, it's reprobate, it's, it's worthy of rejection or maybe even worthless. 
this word. But why? Why has God given them up in the same way he's given them up previously to the lust of their hearts and to their dishonorable passions? Why is it that God gives sinful mankind up to a debased mind? Because they did not see fit to acknowledge him. It's what we've been building this whole time. Don't, don't think that this is somehow disconnected. You can look back up. We've already looked a little bit. Verse 19, right? What can be known about God is plain because God has shown it to them. Or verse 21, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. They, they did not see fit to acknowledge him. In fact, the language really speaks to a, a um, they were determined to be against him. This is the inclination of sinful man apart from the grace of God, is that we are not just um, not leaning towards Him. In fact, we're leaning away from Him. We're disinclined from Him. We're even determined against Him. We desire nothing of Him. Why? Because God gives us up to a debased, a depraved, a reprobate, a worthless mind. And it's important to see the connection here. between our minds and our living. God, see it, God gave them up to a debased mind. And what does that change of mind, what does that giving up, what does what that leaving to a debased mind take them toward? A doing of what ought not to be done. So what's true of your mind and your heart is, is going to be worked out in your life this debased mind, this depraved mindset that God gave them up to means that they're, they're given over to do things that are not appropriate to the nature of man as created by God and made in His image. There's really a little bit of, not really a little, there's, there's some wordplay going on here in Paul's language. One commentator preserves that original wordplay by translating verse 28 like this. See if you can catch on as they did not approve of fully recognizing God any longer, God gave them up to minds that He did not approve. Essentially, they said, we, we don't want to think about you. We don't want to give you what's yours. And God says, okay. Then that's what you can have. Our minds are our highest faculty as human beings. It, it drives everything we do. And so here at the end of Paul's list, it is the greatest form of judgment for God to blind the minds of rebellious mankind. And the rest of the passage illustrates the truth that, that when our minds are debased and depraved and disconnected from God and given over to our own idolatry and, and impurity, that our actions follow along. If the mind is debased, then so must the whole person be. John Murray says it like this. He says, a reprobate mind is one abandoned or rejected of God. And therefore, it's not fit for any activity worthy of approbation or esteem. He says, the judgment of God falls upon the seat of thought and therefore action. And this is why Paul goes into this list of so many things which ought not to be done. There, 29 through 31, is this vice list. In his writings across the, the New Testament, Paul um, uses 
two different types of lists in these, these ways. Virtue lists, on the one hand, you might think about Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. list of virtues that are desirable for a Christian to have. On the other side, and just before that passage, you would have an example of a vice list. The, the works of the flesh there just before the fruit of the Spirit. And he uses these lists in various ways, more, most often to encourage on the one hand and also to chastise on the other God's people in their moral living before their Holy Father. But this list here in Romans 1 is used to show, uh, like Paul's been doing, the great moral decay that has taken place in the world. The, the, the horrible place to which man descends unchecked by the grace of God. He's using this list to remind us why we need a righteousness that is by faith because we have none of our own. Because this list is what characterizes us on our own. There's 27 total vices listed here. You could try to spend the time. I tried to spend the time. There seems to be no real sense to the order, no real logic to the arrangement of these 21 items. And in a sense, that really gives us the, the purpose of Paul's list. His goal, as one man wrote, is to paint a picture of comprehensive wickedness. Maybe he had some thought to the order he put here. Maybe if we really spent a lot of time and became the best Greek scholar in the whole world, we could understand exactly what's going on. But the simple truth is that Paul is trying to show how wicked mankind is apart from God how desperately sick we are, how greatly in need of an alien righteousness we find ourselves. You know, I wouldn't encourage you to do this all of the time, to dwell on your sin and to think about how wicked you are, to think about all that remaining corruption in you. Now, there's a proper place for, for recognizing sin and, and confessing sin to God and, and turning away from it and seeking to fight against it, and, and that's proper and good. Somebody once in my, when I was coming up, still not in ministry yet, but being trained, he said, you know, every day you should wake up and write down every sin you can think of that you've done and recognize how great Jesus has been to you. And, and you know, there, there may be a place for remembering my sinfulness. I'm not sure God wants us to live with such a sense of guilt and shamefulness. But there is a right place for this passage in our lives and a right place before us tonight. That as we go through these things, as we mention, maybe briefly in some cases, these 21 vices, consider how they may be or have been in your heart and life. Beloved, our goal is not to feel shame, but to feel joy and gladness at the gospel that Jesus has worked for us, okay? Paul starts off there at the top with unrighteousness. It's a rejection of God's standard of righteousness. Unrighteousness. Counter God's righteousness. It's refusing to uh, walk along in God's ethic. One, one man suggested that there's even an element there of simply, uh, it, yes, in one hand, it's refusing to walk along the path that God has established, 
But there's also a hypocritical note to this unrighteousness where it is that you claim to be one who walks along this path and yet you still refuse to walk that path. You know, think through the Ten Commandments. We love them, don't we? They're wonderful. They're great. God's set of moral standards for all of His people and for all of the world. How are we doing with those? You know, we claim to love them. What's it look like on the Lord's Day? Does your practice line up with what God has given? What about your relationship to the authorities or to, to life as a whole? Upholding the sanctity of it. What about the marriage bed and the purity of your mind? There's unrighteousness in all of us still. Secondly, he says evil. That is simply to delight in wrongdoing. Covetousness, thirdly. That is greed or overreaching, craving always for more. I need more clothes or more house or more car or more debt so I can get these more things that I want. Fourthly is malice, simple depravity, engaging in things that you know to be wrong. He says that we're full of several things. Fifthly, there of envy. You know, envy is that displeasure you feel when you see someone having something that you want. And it's not always an object. In fact, I'd, I'd be willing to bet it's most often not an object in many cases, but it's I wish that my marriage was like theirs, or I wish that I had children like they do. Full of murder, sixthly. Closely follows envy in many circumstances. Jesus tells us that it happens in our hearts, not just on the outside. Strife. It's a spirit of unwholesome competition and rivalry. Eighthly, there is deceit. That would... Describe someone who acts treacherously, who, who lies in order to get what they want. Maliciousness, ninthly, sort of a, a double one here for number four, but this desire to harm people or, or a, a sense of spite, a spirit of spite in their hearts. 10 through 21, really the last 12 just kind of run one after the other, beginning there at the end of 29 through the end of 31. Gossip. You know, that's destroying someone's reputation secretly. And slander, the one that follows it, is destroying someone's reputation openly. Haters of God. You know, there may be a lot of people in the world and maybe plenty in the church that ignore God. Haters of God are those who resent Him and exclude Him from their thoughts on purpose. Insolence. That is treating others with contempt. Haughtiness, that is arrogance or making unwarranted claims of superiority over another person. Boastfulness, that's bragging about yourself. The 16th one in the list, the inventing of evil. Have you ever gotten creative as you've contemplated how to get away with sin? And one that may seem very odd in the middle of a list like this. Disobedience to parents. Our relationship to our parents. Children, mark this. There's a few of you in here. Your relationship to your parents 
and your acceptance of their authority over you is a reflection of your acceptance of God over you. And people, children, that are disobedient to parents will find themselves quickly inside a list like this as they reject just more than their parents but also God's rule in their life. The last four sort of blend together there, especially in a good English translation. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Foolishness is literally without insight. Uh, One commentator describes this as someone who is willingly senseless in matters of spiritual and moral import. He says, it's not that the foolish person doesn't know right from wrong. Rather, they work very hard not to act like they know the difference between right and wrong. A foolish person isn't stupid. They're living their life very intentionally. Faithless, literally without loyalty. Someone who's untrustworthy. They don't keep their promises. They're unreliable. Heartless, literally without natural affection. Most likely for parents and children, for family these, these are emotionally stunted people who care not for those that God has given to them. And lastly, they're ruthless, without pity, without compassion. This is a merciless person. The Greeks used to use this word in their writing to describe those people who enjoyed the deaths of the gladiators in the arenas. They were merciless. They had no compassion, no pity. Ruthless. Do you see these in yourself? Maybe you find something missing from the list. It's not a comprehensive list. Paul's goal was not to list everything. And in other places where he uses lists like these, he lists other types of sins as well. It's not comprehensive, but Paul does want us to consider that apart from God's grace, each one of us is filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Left to yourself, apart from the restraining grace of God, apart from the special saving grace of God, this is just where you will go. He sums it up in 32. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things, speaking about the list, those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They know that their practices are against God and deserve punishment. We've already looked at it back at the, uh, you know, verse 19 and 20 and 21. It's been made clear to them that there's a God and that they're accountable to him. And this knowledge only compounds their rebellion as they descend further and further into sin and wickedness. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. And they do them, you see. They still do them. Jeffrey Wilson says that the the, the knowledge of the wrath of God against their sin for these 
apart from God's grace, left to their own devices, all in on them and themselves and nothing else, that even with that knowledge of their just condemnation, he says this does not deter them from sinning because they are in love with their lusts. You could look at the person in this situation and say, the wrath of God is coming against you. And what Paul says is they will happily walk out the door into death because this is what they desire. So much so how wicked it is, isn't it? They not only do them, but then they give approval to those who practice them. They not only love their sin and lust, but they applaud others who join with them. Wilson again says, Paul's examination of the sin of the world reaches here its damning climax in this awful statement. Nothing could exceed the enormity of the concluding indictment. Men enjoy sin simply because it is evil. And they delight to observe others in the same state of condemnation as themselves. This is the state of mankind apart from God's grace. And it's not just Paul that makes this observation. It's not just here in Romans 1 where we see this doctrine articulated. Search the scriptures and you will find all sorts of references to things like Psalm 10 where the psalmist writes that the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Proverbs chapter 2 as well speaks about wisdom delivering the the son from men who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. I don't want to be too quick to to point at the world and say, you see that this is true, but that's what Paul is doing. We should be careful not to point too quickly at specific instances or specific people. But Paul is saying, his his argument here is, look, look at all of the world, look at all of mankind, and those apart from God's grace, isn't this where they are going? And can't we not agree with him? That we look around our world, and I'm not just talking about our country. A lot of people, when they preach this text, like to talk about America and how bad America has become. The internet has been horrible for this because we recognize that the whole world is just bad. This is where mankind, no matter where he lives or what he believes or, or what he claims or how good he may look on the outside, this is where humankind goes when they choose to reject the Lord. The world is covered in judgment. And bless the Lord, one day all will be made right. Paul's point in all of this is that everyone on their own is corrupt of heart. Unchecked by the grace of God, we would all descend here into sin and wickedness. There are only two options before us in a situation like this. One, the first option you have is destruction under God's righteous wrath. Every single human being, that's an option that you have. 
before the Lord is destruction under his wrath. Everyone descended from Adam is a sinner. It's back at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It was Adam and Eve that first suppressed the truth at the temptation of the serpent. And everyone descended from him from that moment also leans into this and resists God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's not just about what you've done on the outside. I want, I want you to, to walk away with this impression that it's about the inside of us too. It's what Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 7. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come, not from without, beloved, but from within, and they defile a person. You see, Paul's just mimicking Jesus in the way he writes here at the end of Romans 1. If you continue to live apart from God, shunning his existence and unthankful for who he is and what he's done, then you will one day face his wrath against you for your sin, because this is the only way that there is to go is into the place that deserves death. But there is another way besides destruction under God's wrath, and it is salvation under God's Son. Later on in this epistle, Paul will write in chapter 5, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, we say it in our house all the time. How is it that we are saved? Because Jesus died in my place. Because Jesus died so that I don't have to die. Your sin was counted to him and the cross. And John tells us in his epistle, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is redemption from sin like this. There is redemption for people like you and me in the Lord Jesus. There is salvation in Christ for all who would believe. But do you know that the gospel is about so much more than just freedom from damnation and hell? It is also freedom from sin. God's goal for you is not just so that when you die, you'll go to heaven and not to hell. Now, that's a, that's a pretty wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong. But God wants more for you and from you than that. He wants you to live a good and godly life right now because he knows that a good and godly life is the best way to live. And that we can reap the benefits of our redemption even now. You know, we read, a, we read a passage like this and we think, well, Lord, I don't know how I could ever get away from some of these things. 
But that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is not simply that, that, that God says, well, you're pretty rotten, but I think when you die, I'll put you in heaven. The gospel is that God has chosen you and changed you so that you're no longer dead in these sins and trespasses in which you once walked. You are alive together with Christ. This is why Paul can tell us in other epistles, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is why he can say in, in his epistle, 1 John chapter 2, Ever, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Christians are different creatures than we were before. And we're no longer given to these types of things. We are free, set loose unto righteousness. Now, sometimes as believers, we will find ourselves back in these types of old habits or facing temptation to engage in unrighteousness again. And that's why John will write things like he writes in the second chapter of his first epistle. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's not a call to be perfect in all that you do. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden never going to sin. Our new natures are, are suited and built for obedience. But we are not yet in glory. Do not be discouraged by this. If you read this list tonight and you're a believer and you find that some of these things are dwelling in your members even now, that you're fighting against them again, maybe some of the things from the previous passages in this first chapter are standing out to you, do not be discouraged, Christian. Paul tells us later on in this epistle in chapter 6, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's one way to fight your sin and to fight temptation is to remind yourself of Romans 6.11. I am dead to sin and alive in Christ and sin will have no mastery over me for my master lives in heaven and pleads for me. Or you can go another couple chapters into Romans 8.11. Think of this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and by the way, the implication that Paul's making is that that spirit does dwell in you, Christian. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We have died, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. We are not who we once were. Praise the Lord. If you're still in your sin and you've yet to come to Christ, Hear Paul's main argument here, that we all need a righteousness by faith. And let us join together and praise the Lord that it is ours by faith in his Son.